All right, welcome to another Model Railroad Hobbyist Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Gillette, and tonight we're going to be talking with Don Mitchell. Uh, Don has uh, written numerous articles for various model uh, railroading publications. He's actually met and operated with the uh, uh, railroad modeling great uh, John Allen, and he is a big proponent of realistic prototype uh operation. So welcome to the show, Don. Thank you, Paul. I'm glad to be here. Glad to have you. Can you uh, just give us a heads up on maybe a few of the publications that you've uh, actually had articles published in? Well, let's see. Model Railroader, uh, the NMRA Bulletin, which I edited briefly back in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, Railroad Model Craftsman, a little dabble in model railroading. I've contributed notes and letters to things like the LDC Journal. And over the years, I've written uh, many club letters, uh, museum newsletters, that sort of stuff. So I've kept my fingers busy on the typewriter. Okay. All right. And I had uh, mentioned while we were getting uh, set up that I'd found uh, one of Donnan's articles from back in 2005 in a old copy of a magazine that uh, I had kept. So, how long have you been in model railroading? Well, it depends on what you want to call model railroading. My dad got me a Burlington Zephyr uh, set from American Flyer way back during the Depression. So, if you want to count it for that, good golly, that would make 75-odd years in model railroading. Okay. If you want to go HO scale, I started that in World War II. It actually started when my... My parents took me downtown to New York City to Macy's, which had a big train display. And, of course, during the war, there was no big production. So the New York Society of Model Engineers had a display in Macy's in which they had a sale or giveaway, I forget which, of old copies of Model Railroader. And that was my first experience with that magazine. In that magazine, they had an article on hoppers. And what it was was a series of just black uh, profiles uh, of the hoppers, what they looked like from the side. No artwork, just uh, silhouette-type drawings. And I took that home, looked at it for a year or so. Good golly, I was in my early teens, I think. And I built a hopper car, scratch-built, my first HO hopper car, out of balsa wood and shirtboard from the type they used in the shirts at those days. You know, when you set your... Uh, shirt to a cleaner came back with stuff with a board to hold it fresh and stiff and not wrinkled. So I took that board, uh, pasted on the balsa sticks to represent that uh, uh, outside bracing, put some trucks on it and everything like that, and it was fine. It went down the railroad, but it turned out that the board from inside the shirts warped because it was only finished on one side. So if you looked at it from the top, it looked like a sausage going down the tracks. <laughs> okay. Now, so you, you had your start there in World War II. Tell me, how did you meet John Allen? Well, it was through the Navy. I was a Navy pilot, uh, not a carrier pilot, but I flew land-based patrol planes. And I met John Allen uh, first uh, when my parents moved out to the West Coast in the Silicon Valley area before it was Silicon Va- Valley. And then in uh, 62, the Navy sent me to their postgraduate school in Monterey. 
And that's when I became an operator on John's layout. I got three things in Monterey. I got a postgraduate education. I got to be a Gorian defeated operator. And I met my first wife. Okay, the trifecta. Yeah, and I, I refuse to say what order of ranking they were in, but obviously while my first wife was still alive, she came first. Okay, that's, uh, that's the A answer there. Tell me, uh, I was just getting out of college and catching the HO model railroad bug about the time John Allen was, you know, unfortunately uh, getting sick, and I remember an article in Railroad Model Craftsman uh, about his layout and being just overwhelmed by what I saw in that article, the scenery, the the sheer scope. What was it like when you went into this to this layout where the uh, Gore and Defeated was? Uh, it was sort of amazing because you came down the stairs from his living room, which was fairly plainly furnished, and I remember the stairs did not have a handrail, you got to the bottom of the, step and you, of the stairs, and you turned left, and there in front of you was the town of Port. And at that time, not many, if any, model railroads had any urban scenery like what John had created. And it was just really breathtaking. I can recall my mom, who was uh, sort of a part-time artist, uh, a paid hobby, you might say, and she was amazed also just at the scope of it. I've got to realize, John was not what we would call a realistic modeler, even though some of his things were based on realism. He was an artist, and he used his artist's training to uh, create things using force perspective and colors and things like that to complement his scenery. So he was a visionary rather than a realistic reproduction guy. Okay. Now, tell tell me a little bit about him. What kind of guy was he? He was a very bright gentleman who uh, had a, uh, a sense of his own intelligence. He had uh, some, somewhat of a temper, never used it that I could see on the people, just uh, at the trains when they did perform or something didn't go right on the way on. But he was... Uh, very brilliant and very challenging. When I was at postgraduate school, there was one day a week, which was no uh, no classes or one day every two weeks, I forget which it was, so that the aviators could go flying and get their required flight time in. And at that particular time, I'd be able to go to John's, usually for an operating session the night before, and then the next morning was no schedule at all for us. And if I didn't have a flight scheduled, then John and I would stay, stay up talking and go to 2 or 3 a.m. in the morning. One particular discussion I recall uh, just revolved around foreign aid, what it was, what good it was doing, whether it was worth it and everything like that. And John was somebody who probed what your thinking is without necessarily expounding on his view of things. As I say, he was intelligent and he wanted to do find out what other people were thinking. Okay. Now, I've looked at his uh, models, and they, you know, I guess when he started doing this, it looked like he scratch-built everything. Uh, yes, by he did. 
And he used simple materials. A lot of his buildings were just made out of cardstock, if you believe that. And of course, braced uh, probably with wood, not plastic in those days. Okay. But John was a very devoted scratch builder. And he scratch built a lot of his, uh, I don't know what you call it, engine facilities and what have you, the details he put on engines. Okay. So, yes. Now, John, for instance, on the engines, the engines were freelance, but John was very meticulous about researching where the various uh, pertinences on a real locomotive would go and what are, you know, where the air, pans, air pumps would be, where the sand dome would be, that sort of thing. So he tried to put everything that they could be real engines, just other than being purely freelance. I recall one particular uh, picture that appeared in MR in one of the columns in the back where they used to have a sort of a monthly thing on the doings in the hobby. And there was a picture of him, and I think it was Whit Towers and Paul Moon. Anyway, they were out in Arkansas for some sort of NMRA meet, and they went up to the Reader Railroad. And there was John kneeling on the floor at the end of the car, passenger car, with a tape measure. And one of the members of the party was in the other uh, car, and he was in to get the exact distance between the cars so he'd know how close he had to build, uh, how close couples the cars were and how he had to build his cars to get something that was near representing to that, representing that accurately. Okay. Wow. Now, did he build his locomotives, or were they brass imports? What were his locomotives? Uh, mostly brass or similar imports. Uh, of course, there was some die-cast stuff back then okay. uh, that he added the details to, and I think that there are uh, some of them that still exist. For instance, one time he uh, and Clint Grant were sort of engaged in a, I don't know, friendly competition, I guess you call it, and uh, he built a engine in Clint's scale, and Clint built an engine in his scale. I don't know if it was with the knowledge of each other or whatever, but they ended up both being prize winners in their scale and ended up trading, as I understand it, the engines so that uh, Clint had John's engine and John had Clint's engine. Okay. Uh, at least the way I recall it some 50 years after the fact. Okay. Now... He worked, I guess, the big layout, the one that was unfortunately heavily damaged or destroyed in the fire. He started working on that, what, in 1952 when he moved to that larger house up there in Monterey? You know, I really can't answer that question. My knowledge mainly stems from when I first met him in 62. Okay. Uh, so I don't know all the history. I know that that was his third layout. And in okay. fact, uh, because I was one of the operators and knew one of the guys in in the Monterey area, uh, I ended up with some of John's things uh, that had been donated to the San Diego Model Railroad Museum. And they include the three-dimensional mock-ups for some of his layouts, including that last one. Wow. Okay. Now, did... Uh... When you guys would get together, were they pure op sessions? Did you help build any of the scenery, or was it uh, pure operating? It was uh, pure operating. John did most of the work himself, although some of the people had done work, particularly, uh, I forget the first name, a Navy captain by the name of Cooper. I forget his first name. 
I don't know if I ever met him or it was only once. And Cooper Electric was named after him. And I understand he built a fair amount of, or helped John with the track. Okay. But beyond that, uh, it was just operating sessions. I looked at a little bit of John's uh, wiring once when he was having a problem. He expanded Gory, the town, by putting another scenery in between the existing track and pushing the fascia out a little bit. And he was having trouble with his electrical setup. And all I can say is I looked at it. The two of us could not figure it out. But by the next time uh, I came back there, John had figured it out, corrected the wiring uh, so that we could go ahead with the operating session. Okay. And I've seen photos of one of the yards. I mean, he was very expert at using mirrors to create that, you know, perception of depth and size yes, beyond. Okay. And again, I suggest that comes from his artis artistic bent. Okay. And, of course, one of the things he'd do in the mirrors is he'd position them so you could see part of the backside, like of a car or a building, and he'd use a different color paint on that building that, for the most part, you couldn't see uh, from your view from the operating aisle, so it looked like an entirely different building. Oh, okay. How neat is that? Yeah. Now, when you guys would have your operating session, about how many people would be there? Gee, I'd have to think... Uh, it wasn't that many because uh, the layout just handled. I'd say ten at the most. Okay. I just honestly don't remember. Okay. Uh, what I do remember is uh, at the time I was there, started there, his main operator that came all the time was Bill Corsa, and Bill Corsa had a articulated engine. I believe it was a Sierra uh, brass model, one of the brass models of the Sierra articulated. Yeah. Uh, I'm not quite sure the etymology of the steam engines, but... Uh, that was uh, the prominent engine on one particular train, the local switcher, and Bill invariably ended up running that. Okay. How long did these sessions last when you guys were there? Oh, I'd say two or three hours. Uh, they ran until 10 -ish. Then afterwards, we'd go up in his kitchen. There was coffee, and uh, eventually he got the uh, the puzzle switching layout, the time saver. And there'd be a nickel bet as to what uh, what the time was could be the, the <laughs> particular yeah exactly big big stakes gambling but the idea was to solve the problem in so much time and then you sort of bet on whether you'd make that time or do worse or do better I don't recall all the details I just remember it was a heck of a lot of fun and then afterwards most of the people go off and including myself on the days when I had to go to school the next day and occasionally I'd be able to stay and just shoot the breeze with John. Okay. Well, that was so. When did your association with him? Did it last until he, you know, became ill? Well, John really didn't become ill. He had some problems with his heart, yeah, okay. but he was operating right up until the final day. As a matter of fact, I had been transferred to a duty in Okinawa, and there was a screw up with my transportation arrangements. And by the time they're getting straightened out, I had a week or so of extra time. Now, this would be Christmas of 72, I think it was, somewhere around that time. Okay. And I went to an off-session at John's, which turned out to be the last off-session he has because at that last operating session, and then a few days later, I was on the plane to Okinawa, and I landed in Okinawa, 
And it was uh, a few weeks after that in those pre-internet days when I got a letter from Bill Corsa saying that John had passed away while I was on that plane. Well, that oh, okay. Was a, came as a shock, obviously. And I kept up correspondence with Bill for a while, but then because he had a son in the Navy, but then we lost contact and, uh, as I understand it, eventually moved out of the area and then uh, passed away some years ago. Okay. All right. And all right. And then what was it? Just a heart attack? Is that what? Yes. Uh... Uh, he had had some problems with the heart. I'm not quite sure of my memory at this time. I think he had some sort of heart condition, but I am not sure from a childhood illness. But uh, I really, okay. really don't know about that. Okay. Well, what a shame. I mean, because certainly was made an impact on a lot of model railroaders with what he had done there. Oh, yeah. I can remember I can remember while I was at the postgraduate school that there was a PCR convention in Bakersfield. Now, this was the old Pacific Coast region before it had been broken into two sections, and the conventions yeah. then were almost as large as the national conventions. There were big-time things with manufacturers and lots of people. And one of the features of this particular thing was weathering a freight car. This was a, something that was fairly new in the hobby back then. And boy, was the clinic room crowded as John took a, I guess it was a Varney car, but I really don't know, Varney or model die casting because John had uh, contacts with both those manufacturers. And uh -huh. he weathered it up, showed how to do it, and then gave it to somebody. And you could tell, wow. You know, I've got a car that John Allen weathered, and uh, it was a different hobby back then. And yes, he made an impact on it. Now, some people will poo-poo John. They say about the dinosaurs and all that. <laughs> but if, yeah. if you follow that, those were the Varney ad campaign, ad campaign on the back pages of Model Railroader. And it was an ad campaign. You didn't really see that any of that stuff during the operating sessions or on his layout. So I would say it's a fairly successful ad campaign. Think about it. 50 years after that campaign, 50 or more years after that came, people still remember the dinosaurs, whether they yeah. remember all the little details about John and uh, how finicky is he was about some aspects of operations. They poo-poo the scenery as being over, you know, overly dramatic and that sort of thing. But he was an innovator and... Uh, I sure admired the things that he brought to the hobby. I don't think anybody could uh, argue the impact he's had on it. It certainly motivated me. Uh, let's shift gears a little bit here and talk about the way it's been explained to me as one of your passions, and that is, is it safe to call it realistic operation, prototypical operation? How would you define it? Well, it's hard to define it because I've always maintained that prototypical or realistic operation, the definition depends on the context in which it's used because it has all different aspects. Of it. For instance, I'm a member of the La Mesa Club, which is building the Tehachapi Loop layout in the San Diego Model Railroad Museum, and which is, okay. I understand, going to be featured in September issue of Model Railroad Hobbyist. And they are thing, you know, into the prototype modeling and the operations and the timetable and train order operation. Yet we're going to have a layout when finished that's going to have a main line between the two main stations of something like 27 miles. And when you count the staging that represent the beyond point, maybe 31 to 35 scale miles of track. 
for a 68 mile prototype type track. If you modeled that in N scale, you get maybe 40 miles of track, 40 to 45 miles. It wouldn't be until Z scale where you could model the actual length at close to scale. So what do you call prototype modeling? Okay. So I like that operation. I like the train order and uh, timetable operation. I like all sorts of operation. I have a little switching layout at home uh, where I like to uh, have operating sessions where the focus is on just spotting cars and industries. It's all what you like. Another one of my little sayings is that prototype railroads are built for profit or public purpose. Model railroads are built for entertainment. Okay. And you've got to have something that keeps the crew members interested or yourself interested or else your layout's going to die. Okay. Now, do you have a uh, a specific time period that you follow? Uh, I'm modeling uh, the mid-50s, mid to, you know, 56, 57, somewhere in that particular time okay. frame. But only by happenstance because I had ended up with a whole bunch of Athen Trainmaster shells, which I've paid for my own uh, railroad and that's the time they came out so that dates the railroad okay uh that well that was my next question that as to what do you have on equipment so you've got your own proto lanced or freelanced uh railroad it's entirely freelanced uh, again i get my prototype railroading i go down to the model railroad uh club and there's tehachapi which is a prototype that very few people uh, have the privilege of operating on. So I'm very lucky lucky in that I get the best of both worlds. Okay. So the home layout there, that's mainly a switching uh, layout in your op sessions or on uh, switching challenges? Uh, yeah, but I have another uh, one of my little philosophical sayings. Uh, you try and keep the track work for the switching simple, and then you add the challenge for the operation by having the car spotted at particular locations. Door spots, in my particular case. In other words, okay. a box car would be sent to door one, two, or three, and you have to arrange them properly rather than going through a series of switchbacks and runarounds and all that sort of stuff. Okay. So how many guys come over uh, when you guys operate? Uh, it's a small room, uh, less than 12 by 12, so it's four people for my operating crew plus myself. How often do you guys get together? Uh, I have two operating crews, uh, so I operate twice a month. The other two nominal uh, days of the month, there are two other uh, layout owners involved in the same thing, so we rotate the three of us. Oh, okay. So we're operating... Uh, once a week it just depends on which layout and of course not everybody operates once a week because my layout holds only about half the crew that the others do so now when you go to the uh to the big club layout how often do you get down there well i go uh once a week i used to go more often but uh, i limited myself to once a week these days the club operating sessions we have two uh sessions a year that run all weekend. That's two days, Saturday and Sunday, and they start at about 8 in the morning and run until 6 or 7 at night. We used to go 10 or 12 hours, but that proved too much for the operating crews. And those can hold anywhere between 30 and 40 people as far as the operation goes. Wow. 
Well, that is some diehard model railroading at 10 to 12 hour sessions. Yeah, rotate at the halfway point. So the people wow. have a chance. For instance, if you're doing a job like dispatcher, oh, lots of people want to dispatch timetable train order, particularly on our layout, because it, uh, the length of the run makes it more like a real railroad. So we rotate halfway through the session, and the other jobs rotate also. Yard masters, yard switcher jobs, uh, uh, station operators, the telegraph operators don't use the telegraph. They use phones, but they do hand the train orders to the train crews. So, yes. Okay. And that's what? I'm sorry, the San Diego? The La Mesa Model Railroad Club in the San Diego Model Railroad Museum. The museum itself, we believe, is the largest uh, of its type. It's accredited with the National Associations of Museums. We have about 26,000 square feet in which we have four scale layouts, 1O, 2HO, 1N, and then the fifth layout is a high rail layout. Okay, now, is this one and the same? I think back in the 90s, I had a, a video from Pintrex. Yep, that's it. Wow, that is one huge layout. Yeah, and not only that, the cover photos on the Petrax uh, uh, disc, I guess it was, or was, no, it was a tape. Those cover photos were mine. Were they? Yeah. You know, when I converted to DVD and moved from uh, Ohio out here, there was a young kid next door, the neighbor, who was really just becoming rabid for model railroading. So I gave him all my VHS. I said, you know. <laughs> Here, Kevin, go enjoy these. And uh, I just really love that uh, model railroad. I think what we were following uh, tunnel motors around the uh, track pulling tank cars. You know, I can't really remember it, but, yes, we have a model of a, of a tank train like they used to run between uh, Mojave and the L.A. area. Oh, yeah, what an impressive model railroad. Yeah. That, uh, you know, we've got a, in Phoenix, there's two very large model railroads, but nothing approaching the scope of what you've just described there. You've got to go west, young man, as the saying goes. Well, you know what? My wife just uh, took a position at a uh, med center in in Dallas, so I'm going to start splitting my time between oh, Phoenix and, and Dallas. But uh, when I'm back here tending to my own layout and stuff, I can see a road trip coming up to go down to uh, La Mesa there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's right, because she's out of town. I will not have any curfew. Yeah. Well, when you do it, give me an email or something, and if I can't be there, we'll certainly arrange for somebody to take you back scene on the layout and show you everything and explain it to you. Wow, I'd love to do that. I'd like to work it into a uh, maybe a video podcast. That would be uh, really cool. Now, do you enjoy uh, building equipment, weathering, and so forth like that? Oh, yeah. I enjoy all aspects of the hobby. Uh, okay. Being in the Navy, I've tended to, uh, in my younger days, be a club member of some sort. And usually, I would end up underneath the layout because I was one of the seemingly limited pool of people that Knew a little bit about wiring and electricity, okay. so I spend a lot of time wiring. Nowadays, I prefer to stay on top of the layout and piddle. Uh, I'm working on the engines uh, for my fleet 
uh, up here. It requires, for a small layout, a disproportionate amount of uh, locomotives because I use serial staging, one behind the other, and so my locomotives are stuck in hidden staging. Oh, okay. So the layout swallows up a lot of locomotives, even though most of them are not visible. So it's been fun working on those and getting them up to speed. But in the meantime, uh, operations have kept going. One of the things, uh, side comments, since we're talking about John Allen's system, I've adapted yeah. his tab-on-car routing system after a careful look at available routing systems like car cards and computer-generated switch lists and others. It works for me because uh, one of the beauties of that system is that the cars are always routed to the correct destination no matter where they end up on the layout which is fine because i live actually not in san diego but in coronado which is a little town of twenty thousand that separates uh, san diego bay from the ocean so we get visitors i have a grandson that comes over doesn't matter where he puts the cars they're always routed correctly for the next stop session <laughs> okay uh, are you dcc absolutely uh, okay. We were one of the early adapters of North Coast uh, uh, back when System 1 was still floating around, and then North Coast came on the scene. And that was my recommendation for the La Mesa Club, which is taking it up. And the two other uh, skill clubs have also taken up North Coast. So we have four layouts, or at least three, with NCE, as I understand it. In okay. Team. Well, there's a – maybe you've – heard about it there's a new system out uh you know how everybody on dcc has the availability of doing radio yeah uh or wireless i guess mm -hmm. and my local hobby shop down uh in phoenix an affair with trains just bought uh, a quite large museum quality layout the owner of it was getting up in age and he didn't want to see it fall in disrepair so they bought it disassembled it into sections, had a professional moving company bring it around. And it's now in the back end of the hobby shop. And it's really impressive. And they are adapting. They've asked me to come down and do a lot of the wiring. Mm -hmm. A RailPro system. You ever heard of RailPro? No, I haven't. It's actually Radio Direct. Oh, okay. Yeah. You can piggyback on top of Digitrax or any of the others. But this sends the commands via the air. Mm -hmm. There's no signals go through the track. Mm -hmm. And so I'm fascinated by it. Uh, so the company just getting started uh, actually sent a gentleman an email. I'd like to interview him on the podcast. Mm -hmm. but I was just fascinated by it that you don't need the track for anything but power. Yeah. Well, if it handles enough locomotives and does your consisting and all that, it sounds work. Sounds like it would work fine. You know, I've seen other people advocate batteries, and then there's the infrared-based systems, so rail links. So, yeah. I think, uh, yeah, Joe talked to a guy at the uh, National Convention from Northwest Shortlines who has that, uh, you know, truck-mounted motor with an okay. integral DCC chip. I think that I read about that. I haven't looked in detail at it because I'm committed to NCE and sort of keep my try and keep my hand in because uh, the club runs it. Right. 
Well, the, the real fascination I had with it was that when you don't have a motor in the hood, you've got room for batteries. Yeah. And that just appealed to me. My model railroad is outdoors here in Phoenix. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I had to simplify because I had too much track. And just keeping the track clean to operate became became such a burden. I no longer enjoyed doing mm-hmm. it. So I yeah. ripped everything down, simplified the... Uh, the layout, and I went, boy, that would be great. I wouldn't have to worry about, you know, being as diligent on track cleaning because don't need power to pick up on the wheels. I've operated on a couple of battery-powered uh, outdoor layouts, O-scale or larger. I forget what they call them, FG gauge, uh-huh. that sort of stuff. And, yeah, it's a neat idea. The problem I've seen with those is they can't handle the engines, uh, number of engines in conscious like we're doing in Tehachapi. Okay. All right. And, of course, like with all things, uh, you know, I'm sure technology will catch up with that need. Absolutely. I mean, it's progressing so fast. And you think about batteries, well, the technology that has gone into batteries and coming on, if they ever succeed in getting powerful enough batteries and small enough size, well, that would be a fascinating development. Oh, there's a, uh, I've mentioned this before on the, the show, there's a very large, it's either O scale or G scale, about five miles from me, uh, that uses the USA trains size equipment. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's literally on acres with a couple thousand feet of track. And he converted all of his locomotives to batteries. Yeah. Even some of the USA uh, big boys, which are like 70-pound locomotives, because there was a situation in that extreme, you know, trying to keep all that track powered. So he is now radio control with uh, battery power. So it can be done. I'm going to have to get over to Phoenix and see some of that stuff. I usually get over there once a year. We have a good uh, couple uh, friends, a couple that are deeply in the model railroading, HO scale over there. So, yes. Okay. Well, likewise, you come to town, my insurance agent is neighbors with this guy. Ah. And uh, he, when I mentioned it to uh, Don, he's going, oh, yeah, that's so-and-so down this road and so forth. He said, it's huge. It's on acreage. He said, when you want to meet the gentleman and uh, see it in the fall, he said, give me a call. So There you go. I'm going to take him up on it this year once the uh, the high temperatures go away. Yeah, sounds great. Yeah, well, what else is on your mind, Don? Appreciate your time tonight, but uh, what else do you want to share with the uh, public? Oh, not much at this time, I guess. Uh, We've talked about my layout and the Tehachapi layout. I just mentioned once again that Charlie Comstock, the editor of Model Railroad Hobbyist, uh, came down to the La Mesa Club to photograph the loop, and I've seen proofs of his photographs, and the best way I can describe them is stunning. Okay. He also mentioned that he had some videos, so I'm sure that'll be interesting, too. And I believe it comes out on the first Monday of September, but I'm not sure about that. Okay, so that's a little bit more than a week away. Yeah. So Charlie's doing good work on his own home layout, too, so yes. Okay. Well, Don, I appreciate the time you've uh, given me tonight here. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Well, thank you, Paul. I'm glad I had a chance to talk to you. And thank you to all of our listeners for joining us on the Model Railroad Hobbyist Podcast. Hope to see you next time.